6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of 2 Chronicles, chapters 29 through 32. We're now at the, the fourth of the chapters on Hezekiah, and some problems are starting to surface here. After these things and the establishment thereof, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, came and entered into Judah and encamped against the fenced cities and thought to win them for himself. Sennacherib is a powerful, powerful king, and he's now entering the land with, with an eye towards conquest. And when Hezekiah saw that, um, now back up a little bit, um, Hezekiah, when he began his independent reign, broke the treaty that Ahaz had dealt with the Assyrians, and he rebelled against Assyria. So that's why Sennacherib's coming out to get things back under control. And uh, he couldn't do it earlier because Assyria was preoccupied with Babylon, which is starting to get... Uh, hard to manage. It was a little troublesome city-state within Assyria that's starting to get powerful, and it's going to get so powerful that it won't be very long, a couple genera generation or two, where it's going to knock off Syria, Assyria. But in the meantime, Syria's got their hands full, so they couldn't deal with this because of the rebellions within the Babylonian provinces. But uh, so Sargon's successor, Sennacherib, now is going to try to straighten things out. So when Hezekiah saw that Sennacherib was coming, that he was purposed to fight against Jerusalem, he took counsel with his princes and his mighty men to stop the waters of the fountains which were without the city, and they did help him. See, one of the things that he wants to do is conceal the real source of their water for the city if they have a siege. And uh, now, the stream that he's probably talking about is the Gahon Spring. We'll talk a little bit before this chapter is over about the interesting Hezekiah's Tunnel that you can actually visit if you go with us to Jerusalem and prepare to you know, wade knee-deep in water. You can go through his tunnel. But anyway... But there was gathered much people together who stopped all the fountains and the brook that ran through the midst of the land, saying, we sh Why should the kings of Assyria come and find much water? And he strengthened himself and built up all, uh, all the wall that was broken, raised it up to the towers, another wall without, repaired Milo in the city of David, and made darts and shields in abundance. So he's strengthening himself in terms of the weaponry. And he set captains of war over the people and gathered them together to him in the street of the gate of the city, and spake comfortably to them, saying, Be strong and courageous. Be not afraid nor dismayed for the king of Assyria, nor for all the multitude that is with him, for there be more with us than with him. With him is an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us and to fight our battles. And the people rested themselves upon the words of Hezekiah, the king of Judah. This is called leadership, the right kind. Boy. And after this did Sennacherib, the king of Syria, send his servants to Jerusalem. But he himself laid siege against Lachish which, and all his power with him. 
unto Hezekiah the king of Judah, and unto all Judah that were at Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith Sennacherib the king of Assyria, Whereunto ye trust, ye that abide in the siege in Jerusalem? And so he's asking for surrender here. Doth not Hezekiah persuade you to give over yourselves to die by famine and by thirst, saying, The Lord our God shall deliver us out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Hath not this same Hezekiah taken away his high places and his altars, and commanded Jude and Jerusalem, saying, Ye shall worship before one altar and burn incense upon it? See, Sennacherib is assuming that by destroying all these other altars that they've, you know, denuded themselves of their support. He doesn't understand that, that was, he doesn't understand the living God. Know ye not that I and my, this is Sennacherib talking, I and my fathers have done unto all the people of other lands, were the gods of the nations of those lands in any ways able to deliver their lands out of mine hand? My God stronger than your God kind of thing here, huh? Who was there among all the gods of those nations that my fathers utterly destroyed that could deliver his people out of my hand? That your God should be able to deliver you out of my hand? You understand his logic? And by the way, he's not saying this in Assyrian. He's saying this in Hebrew so the common people can hear all this. Now therefore let not Hezekiah deceive you nor persuade you on this manner. Neither yet believe him, for no god of any nation or kingdom was able to deliver his people out of my hand and out of the hand of my fathers. How much less shall your God deliver you out of my hand? And the servant spake yet more against the Lord God and against the servant Hezekiah. He wrote also letters to rail on the Lord God of Israel and to speak against him, saying, As the gods of the nations and other lands have not delivered their people out of my hand, so shall not the God of Hezekiah deliver his people out of mine hand. What do you think Hezekiah did with those letters? No, he didn't insert it where the sun never shines. No, 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 no. What did he, what did he do with those letters? He did a very interesting thing. He took them with him and laid them out on the altar before the Lord. Let the Lord see what's being presented here. I like that. <laughs> then they cried out with a loud voice in the Jews' speech, there it is, unto the people of Jerusalem that were on the wall to affright them and to trouble them that they might take the city. And they spake against the God of Jerusalem as against the gods of the people of the earth which were the work of the hands of man. And for this cause, Hezekiah the king and the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos, prayed and cried to heaven. Man, when you've got a guy like Isaiah at your elbow, that helps too, you know. Isaiah is quite a guy. He's probably the most articulate guy in the Old Testament. He had the most elaborate vocabulary. He was a royal prophet. Many of the prophets were, you know, in the fringe areas of society. No, no. Isaiah was at court with Hezekiah. It was a very interesting guy, very interesting book. You need to study that. And the Lord sent an angel. Now, this doesn't detail it like Kings does and so forth, but he as a guy actually takes it and lays it before the Lord and see what they're saying, you know. And the Lord gave him comfort. And he did more than just give him comfort. This little verse is kind of fun. The Lord sent an angel which cut off all the mighty men of valor and the leaders and the captains of the camp in the camp of the king of Assyria. So he turned with shame to face his own land, and when he was coming into the house of his God, that they came forth of his own bowels and slew him there with the sword. That angel that God sent one night after dinner slaughtered 185,000 Syrians. 
You don't mess with angels. Angels indulge in direct combat. Angels can lead people by the hand. Angels can, can have dinner with people unknowingly looking like people. They want to. They're not like demons. De demons and fallen angels are very different. There's an angel sent by God that slaughtered 185,000. I, can, can, I wonder how many Syrians were there. I wonder if they got every other one. That always, le that always leaves a very special impression. Now, he then returned, he returns in shame back to his capital. He never again tries to attack Jerusalem. Here they summarize that when he was coming to the house of his God, that they came forth of his own bowels and slew him there with the sword. His own sons kill him. That's 20 years later, by the way. It's just summarized here by the... By the, by the, by the uh, so God gave him a, a reassuring answer to the prophet Isaiah. That's in 2 Kings 19. The angel that destroyed the Syrian host killed 185,000 Syrians. And sometimes later, the, the, the chronicler overlook, you know, doesn't make this point, but sometimes later, he's murdered by two of his own sons in the temple of his god, Nishrach. And according to the Assyrian annal, historical annals, this apparently occurred in 681 B.C., about 20 years after the aborted campaign against Jerusalem. So it's a point made, but the duration there is provocative. Any moving on. Thus the Lord saved Hezekiah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem from the hand of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and from the hand of all other, and guided them on every side. And many brought gifts unto the Lord to, to Jerusalem to pre and presents to Hezekiah, the king of Judah, so that he was magnified in the sight of all nations from thenceforth. What's the one you watch out for? Pride. And Hezekiah does a bad thing. In those days, well, there's another thing I'll come to. In those days, Hezekiah was sick unto the death. And he prayed unto the Lord, and he spake unto him, and he gave him a sign. Let's, let's pick this up in Isaiah. Isaiah records this thing in a little more detail. In Isaiah chapter 38... It says, In those days was Hezekiah sick unto the death. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came unto him and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Set thine house in order, for thou shalt not die, thou shalt die and not live. When you have a prophet walk into your study and tell you that, you're not too excited about it. <laughs> it's in Isaiah 38. Then Hezekiah turned his face toward the wall and prayed unto the Lord and said, Remember now, Lord, I beseech thee, how I have walked before thee in truth and with a perfect heart, and have done that which is good in thy sight. And Hezekiah wept sore. Then came the word of the Lord to Isaiah, saying, Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus saith the Lord God, Thus saith the Lord, the God of David, thy father, I have heard thy prayer, I have seen thy tears. Behold, I will add unto thy days fifteen years. And I will deliver thee and this city out of the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. And this shall be a sign unto thee from the Lord, that the Lord will do this thing that he hath spoken. Behold, I will bring again the shadow of the degrees which has gone down in the sundial of Ahaz ten degrees backward. So the sun returned ten degrees by which degrees it was gone down. Let's back up. In Damascus, I believe, there is a sundial that impressed Ahaz. So Ahaz had a copy of it built for himself, and this apparently was like a monument that he could watch from his window. And the shadow of that sundial fell on the ten steps. 
Okay. And God says to, to Hezekiah, what sign would you have? Shall I make the thing go forward or backward? Well, Hezekiah, making it forward doesn't sound like that big a trick. He said, make it go backward. God says, okay. So as he watches, the shadow of that sundial goes backwards 10 steps. And those 10 steps turn out to be about 15 degrees. Now, um, so he, so the sun goes, turns, returns 10, it says degrees here, but it's really steps, by which degrees it was gone down. So how did God do this? Nobody knows. There are all kinds of strange stories that make no sense. I won't waste our time on those. It's very simple. It could be just as simple as refracting the light to make that shadow move. He didn't have to stop the planet Earth spinning or any of that sort of stuff. Um, there are stories around that try to link the long day of Joshua, which is obviously many centuries earlier, with the 40, diff 40 minutes that are missing, and they try to... And those are nonsense, bluntly. They sound very cute at first, but the best of my awareness, they're nonsense. And I just mentioned that if you come across it, don't get all hung up on that stuff. In any case, let's get back to Chronicles. But Hezekiah rendered not again according to the benefit done unto him, for his heart was lifted up. Therefore, there was wrath upon him and upon Judah and Jerusalem. And uh, this is Second Chronicles. Back to Second Chronicles again. Notwithstanding, Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord came not upon them in the days of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah had exceeding rich, exceeding much riches and honor, and he made himself treasuries for silver and for gold and for precious stones and for spices and for shields and for all manner of pleasant jewels, storehouses for the increase of corn and wine and oil and stalls for all manner of beasts and, and coats for the flocks. Moreover, he provided him cities and passions of flocks and herds in abundance, for God hath given him substance very much. But he gets some ambassadors from Babylon visiting. And in great pride, he shows them his treasuries. And that's what sets the stage a generation later for Babylon to come after those treasures. He, you know, he, he made a mistake. And, and Isaiah scolds him for that. You showed him what? And, and predicts what's going to happen. That's all again in the Isaiah account. The same Hezekiah also stopped the upper water course of the Gihon and brought it straight down the west side of the city of David, and Hezekiah prospered in all his works. One of the things not detailed here but is in the scriptures, the tunnel that he built, dug through solid rock from the Gihon spring to the pool of Siloam. That's 1,777 feet in rock. Workmen digging from each side, and it meanders, but they meet. How they navigated that, I have no idea. It's very, when you're there, it's hard to figure out. But in 1880, they found an inscription at one end of the tunnel, about 19, front, 19 feet from the Polisolum end, and it narrates the history of the excavation. And it's generally regarded as probably being executed, that inscription by Hezekiah's workmen. There are some scholars that suspect that parts of that, if not all of it, might actually have actually been done since the days of Solomon. But it's generally ascribed to Hezekiah, and it's known as the Tunnel of Hezekiah, and it's referred to here in the Scripture. Now here's an allusion to these ambassadors. Howbeit in the business of the ambassadors of the princes of Babylon, who sent unto him to inquire of the wonder that was done in the land, God left him to try him, that he might know all that was in his heart. And he makes a big mistake that Isaiah takes him down on. 
The chronicler, pardon me, the chronicler doesn't dwell on this. You find all this out by reading Isaiah and Kings. Now the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and his goodness, behold, they are written in the vision of Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, and in the book of Kings of Judah and Israel. It's, it's a little frustrating to try to summarize Hezekiah in just, first of all, the chronicler just does four chapters, and we'll sort of stick with that. But I want you to be aware of the fact that in the writings of Hezekiah, you'll find some psalms, you'll find it, and we learn a lot about how psalms are organized by some of the details of studying the psalm of uh, Hezekiah. And uh, so there's, there's, there's much richness here, there's much more to study than we've retaken, we're just retaking the you know, skimming the, the, the cream here of the chronicler. And Hezekiah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the chiefest of the sepulchers of the sons of David, the best, the top ones. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem did, on, did him honor at his death. And Manasseh, his son, reigned in his stead. We have the best king, and we're going to end up with the next one is the worst. We've got the best of the bunch here. Manasseh is worst. Now, it turns out that Manasseh was born in those 15 years that God gave him that were extra. And that causes some people to prognosticate that that was probably unfortunate. Hezekiah might have been better off if he had died... Um, when God had originally scheduled it. Because it was in that 15 years he makes his mistakes. And that's 15 years that Manasseh is born, and his Manasseh turns out to be a major, major problem. In fact, it's understanding Manasseh that we, 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 we will gain a major insight as to what really happened in the days of Josiah that follows him. We need to understand both. So next time we're going, we've been, in, we've been in Hezekiah chapters 29 through 32. The next time we're going to take two kings. We're going to take Manasseh, who is really bad news. There'll be blood in Jerusalem from border to border. God is so upset with the rule of Manasseh that he pronounces a judgment upon Jerusalem and Israel over that. Josiah comes along as a young kid, but his heart is really right, so much so that God says, I'm still going to have that judgment, but it won't be in your days. So that's a cloud overhanging the, the nation. Josiah promotes a revival very effectively. But it's very important for us to understand some of the details of that. And it's going to tangentially involve the Ark of the Covenant. Because in the, in the third verse of chapter 35 of Second Chronicles, Josiah orders the Levites to return the Ark of the Covenant to the Holy of Holies. Around that verse have emerged some conjectures by most commentators, that are wrong. I'll show you why I think they're wrong. They assume that the Levites conform to that request of the king. There's some evidence to the contrary. In fact, we're going to trace next time 
some background that's all in the text of Second Chronicles 35 that will open up the possibility of some big surprises. So next time is going to be a great fun time. So we'll deal with that. That will leave for us only one session that will cover chapter 36, which is the big climax in the sense of the fall of the southern kingdom to the Babylonians. And there's some real surprising aspects to that that we'll try to bring out. And to the extent that we have any extra time, we'll go ahead and put the whole thing in perspective by doing a summary next time, the session after next. So with that, I was going to say, let's stand for a word of prayer. Before we do, let's ask ourselves, you know, we've waded through here, you know, a lot of kings. There's, uh, you know, 20 some odd. What are the lessons we learn from each one of these? What's the repetitive lesson all the way through? If you're going to sit here and say, okay, great, check, that's great history, what's it got to do with me? Paul says, whatsoever things are written aforetime were written for our learning, that we, through the patience and comfort of the Scriptures, might have hope. What hope, what do we get out of these lessons? We have bad kings, most of them bad, some good ones, some really, really good. What made the difference? Faithfulness. They, they listened to God. They trusted God. Many of these guys were faced by astonishing odds, and they didn't buckle. They trusted God. In other cases, they had huge supporting strength, didn't trust God, and they got clobbered. You know, the one thing I think the Holy Spirit would have us glean from this, besides there's some very intricate aspects to the history of Israel, which has all kinds of messianic implications, and we'll try to touch on that as we go. But just in terms of our practical, everyday life, the kings that trusted God, that took Him at His word, prospered. And not just in spiritual terms, in, in material terms they prospered. Their reigns brought peace and so forth. Um, it's so strange because the lessons are almost black and white. Black and white. When they win, they win, and when they lose, they lose. And it's all a question of, did they, were they paying attention to what God had told them to do? And uh, we're going to see that dramatized, especially next time, in contrasting Manasseh with Hezekiah. The worst against the best, and so forth. So anyway, with that, let's stand for a closing word of prayer for ourselves. And let's bow our hearts. Father, we come before your throne fully recognizing we live in a different time. The temple is a thing of the past. One greater than the temple is among us. We thank you, Father, that we have so much more at our disposal than these would even dream of. And yet, Father, we also recognize that we too still are encumbered by our ingratitude, by our presumptions. We presume upon your grace and your mercy. Oh, Father, we just ask you to forgive us for our sins, especially our sins of presumption, 
and our sins of ingratitude. You who've gone to such extremes on our behalf, which include bringing us here to these texts, bringing us here to this awareness of there were kings that succeeded and kings that failed, and how we just might learn from this Father. If only the southern kingdom had learned more from the plight of the northern kingdom. And yet, Father, we recognize we've, we are confronted with the same choices, choices of faithfulness versus choices of apostasy. We're faced with the choices of the, the difficult road or what would appear to be the easy road. And how often, day by day, moment by moment, we fail you, Father. We recognize, Father, that every day you find a new way to ask us the question, do you trust me? And, oh, Father, how often we fail. We confess it as sin, Father, and we ask you in Jesus' name, through your Holy Spirit and through your Word, to reignite in each of us a renewed commitment to love you with all our hearts, soul, strength, and mind. Knowing that love is not an emotion, it's a commitment, Father. And we do indeed, this night, commit ourselves into your hands. We do pray, Father, that you would reignite in each of us a new passion for your word and a new sensitivity to the moving of your spirit. That we each might prove more fruitful for your kingdom. As we commit ourselves this night without any reservation whatsoever into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of 2 Chronicles. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. You can also call us on 1-800-K-HOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music